0: Well, as we've uh, already heard, I'm relatively new to this church, and very, very grateful for how uh, we've been so warmly welcomed and included. And it didn't take long to know that our church shares one characteristic that is very common to churches worldwide, namely that there are differences of opinion sometimes on important issues as well as those uh, fringe peripheral matters. There are differences, different uh, preferences with regard to styles of worship, preferences uh, on where our resources should be allocated, different expectations on how pastoral care should be delivered, contrasting personalities and cultural instincts, etc, etc. God-pleasing and effective churches, and I believe this is one, find their way through these things. And the key is having and living with the mind of Christ. So this afternoon I want us to explore what that might mean in the letter to the Philippians. But let me pray first. Dear Lord, we do pray that you would, through your word, meet us, each one of us, at the point of our individual needs, whether that be for for rescue, for salvation, or for correction, or for growth. Meet with us. For the sake of your church and the honour of your name. Amen. So, humility. Humility essential for the unity of the church. Here's a scenario that's uh, probably a bit too familiar. A new minister comes to a small church and he notices two very, very regular families who never, never sit near each other. They never make eye contact. They avoid each other very noticeably before church and and after church meetings. The minister, of course, wanted to know what what was going on, so he discreetly inquired with other members of the church, senior people that had been around a long time. Oh, they said, it's been like that for many years, maybe even two decades. So what's behind it? Well, none of us can quite remember what the issue was. Frustrated, the the minister then goes to each of these these families uh, one at a time and it turns out they can't remember what it was about either. It seems that the dispute was more important than the reason for it. What remained for many years was the memory of the nasty words that had been exchanged rather than the issue over which the difference had arisen. Paul, imprisoned and facing possible execution, seeks and finds joy in the reassurance of unity and purposefulness in the church. And our focus today is the first half of uh, chapter 2, especially verse 5. He calls us to uh, humility and unity, but not just as a moral good, but as something which speaks to the very identity of God and lies at the centre of who we are to be in Christ. The letter, as we will continue to discover over the next few weeks, is very encouraging. But the Philippian church is not without problems. Later in chapter 4, Paul mentions two women who he says, contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. These are good good people who nevertheless are disagreeing over something. And Paul never tells us what it is. It doesn't seem to matter. I plead with Eodio and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, he says. Well, let's, let's have a look at the first four verses of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Value others above yourselves, that could almost serve as a definition of the humility that Paul is seeking in them. He says it differently in Romans 12, where he writes, outdo one another in showing honour. A mother was preparing pancakes for her two sons, John 6 and Bobby 4. The boys began to argue over who's going to get the first pancake. The mother, godly woman, saw the opportunity for a moral lesson. If Jesus was sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Six-year-old John, obviously with a very firm grip on the lesson, turns to his younger brother. Bobby, you can be Jesus today. (laughs) In writing to the Ephesian church, again, Paul's in prison, And again, he connects humility with unity. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit." Now we might think humility is not much practiced in, in our society, but it is at least co- commonly regarded as a virtue. Um, not so in the ancient Greek and Roman world. this was not the case. His Aristotle, he and other of the social me- media influences, thought humility was not a virtue. Humility was a cringing weakness. Whether you were rich or poor, what you prized was honour, having your merits recognised and your name praised. Uh, Some of you will know the writings of uh, John Dixon, a historian. He argues that it was only through the impact of Jesus' teaching and the Church's example that humility gradually came to be seen as a virtue. Crucifixion was Rome's great humiliating power. Yet Christianity subverted it into the the symbol of godly humility and mercy. But but there is a, a caveat that we need to throw in here. Of course, deferring to others in the church does not mean that any thinking that is contrary to the central message of the word should hold equal standing with biblically informed perspectives. This is not a call, for example, to tolerate the idea that the church should cut itself off from the world or that uh, my, uh, my good deeds should contribute to my salvation. But when it comes to the small things, the peripheral matters in church and in life, what we need is a healthy distrust of our own instincts, a willingness, maybe even an eagerness to hear from other believers and to make their welfare, their interests uppermost in how we decide to move forward. So unity in the church is not possible without this type of humility. That's a fairly grand, sweeping statement. But why would I say that? Because we're all different. We are diverse. We are a body of various and diverse parts. And that diversity, of course, is is by God's wise design and lends strength to the church. But almost by definition, it means that We can't all get our preferences in all matters. The church has a king, but no aristocracy. I I said that this morning and suddenly the thought emerged in my head, is that the right thing to say in an Anglican church? I'm not sure. I'll take that up with Ian later. On virtually every matter, some of us will have to defer to the opinions and preferences of others, whether we do so humbly or not. So with humility-enabled unity as the goal, the question becomes, how are we going to achieve that? So we move on to the first part of chapter 2, and our key verse, verse 5, reads, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The plea uh, to unity is based on Christians being united with Christ and on their mutual experience of his spirit in their lives, verse 1. Verse 5 gets various treatments uh, by the, the translators have the same mindset as Christ Jesus or the same attitude as Jesus or, in fact, the same mind as Christ Jesus. And you you may have noticed in chapter 1, verse 27 and 2, verse 2, we're exhorted to have the same mind as each other and yet verse 5 says, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Jesus. And, of course, that makes sense. We will be like-minded when we each seek the mind of Christ. Jesus is to be our model in humbling, putting others first. God-honouring unity can be achieved when the centre of our attention is the one who makes the church a reality and gives us our reason for being. But consider consider an orchestra. The player of each instrument doesn't invent his or her own idea of what a key is or what being in tune means. They don't tune their instruments to whatever feels good to them on that night or even on the notes that they're hearing from the instrument next to them. They are tuned to the same standard. Now, in my ignorance, I was going to uh, add to this uh, this demonstration that that standard was a tuning fork. But in fact, as I did a bit of reading around here, I discovered that, in fact, the orchestra tunes to a single A, four forty hertz, played by the principal. Oboist. And that's, that's Sarah looking very pleased with herself and her A 440 hertz. So if you go to a concert, a, a symphony-type concert, um, before the conductor comes out, you'll hear suddenly there's a silence and the oboe rings out their wonderful A across the hall. And then there's a cacophony of, of sounds. There's all of the other instruments uh, either are tuned or the ears of the other players are tuned to that beautiful, pure note. Then they're ready to make beautiful music. And so it is with a congregation. A hundred people become more in tune with each other when each one is looking to and emulating Christ, when each one has the mind and the priorities of Christ in focus. But of course... Following the Lord's example requires us to appreciate more deeply what that mind was and why it's important for us to take it to ourselves. So, Paul elaborates what and why in adopting the mind of Christ. Someone has suggested that there are some things that are so profound that they can only be adequately captured in poetry. And Paul does that here with the wonderful so-called Christ hymn, verses 6 to 11, which lays the groundwork for the challenge of Christian self-sacrificing unity. And we actually don't know whether Paul wrote this hymn, this poem, or whether he was citing an earlier hymn from the very early church. That doesn't matter. But let's let's have a look at it again from verse 5. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance. As a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, today we can only be like stones uh, skimming across the surface of these deep waters. But we find in Jesus the truth of the nature of God. He's the one who lays aside his rights for the sake of the world he made and the people he loves. Jesus didn't grasp or cling onto the glorious aspects of being God, which were rightly his from all eternity. Possibly the reader here is, is meant to think of the contrast with the first Adam, who foolishly attempted to be like God by disobeying him. Jesus, the second Adam, while God himself obeyed his Father to become man. This obedience involves some type of letting go or emptying of himself, as the original implies. Instead instead of emptying himself, or rather in addition to emptying himself, he fills himself up with concern for us. The Son of God put our interests ahead of his own. He became a servant. Servant to his father's will and to serve in our rescue. From the glory of being one in the Godhead, creator of all things, to being born to a poor teenager in an animal stall, living a life of serving. Jesus chose to Divest himself of the trappings, the, the advantages of being God to share our frailty, our physical limits and our susceptibility to death. A thing utterly alien to the infinite, eternal God. And all this he did in obedience to his Father. We hear Jesus repeatedly speaking of his coming in obedience to the Father's will. Uh, So many references that I I could drag up here, but just three. John 6, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Or John 10, no one takes it, my life, from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And the writer to the Hebrews effectively gives us a motto for Jesus' earthly life. I have come to do your will, O God. And it's in our text as well. Verse 8 of Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Now that's probably better rendered, obedient all the way to death. Because he wasn't obeying death. He was obeying his Father. Here was self-denying humility that attested and confirmed the unity and the identity of the Godhead. Paul uses um, Jesus' unparalleled act of humility and unity with his Father to spur the Philippian Church and us to walk our path of self-denying love toward practical unity. Now our first reading was from the extraordinary prayer of Jesus in John 17, and uh, I'd love to read the whole thing again, but I've just pulled out a few sentences. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours, writes Jesus, uh, prays Jesus in this wonderful, intimate prayer. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Well, that's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity or perfected unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. The the repetition in there is pretty hard to miss. Jesus didn't want us to miss the point. Just as God is both three in one So Christians are many and one, many parts to one body and the church is one in Christ and the Father and this oneness will one day be brought to perfection. In John 13, Jesus said, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And here in this John 17 prayer, if Christians live this self-denying life, The watching world will see Jesus and know that the Father, the Creator, has sent him. Presumably, the converse is also true. To the extent that Christians fail to live with unifying love for one another, we are hiding Christ, the very Saviour the world needs. It has been said that the command to love each other is not only the church's domestic rule, it is the church's foreign policy. Uh, last week, uh, Andrew Vella uh, suggested a coffee mug saying, well, this is, this is the one I suggest. Yes, love is the church's foreign policy. So we see... For the church to show the loving, servant-like mind of Christ is not just a nice idea. It speaks to the very identity of God. Jesus' self-emptying submission to the Father confirms the oneness of the Godhead. Christians submit their lives to Jesus as Lord and thereby attest to our union with him and our humble, self-denying submission to each other attests to our being one in Christ and his purposes in the world. So Jesus, Paul and all the New Testament writers emphasise the importance of unity within church communities. And we've been sent into the world with a parallel mission as Jesus, and our effectiveness will be impacted by what the world sees in us. The world shows very little interest in our various doctrinal differences, doctrinal emphases, but Jesus knew the world will notice any signs of lack of love between Christians. And conversely, take God seriously when our self-denying love is on display. Well, my last very brief point is the rest of this Christ hymn. I'm not going to read it again. In chapter 1, we learn that Paul, submitting to God's call on his life and his humbling in prison, had Uh, had served to advance the gospel. It was impacting in new places because he was in jail. And so too, the second part of the Christ hymn declares that Christ's supreme act of self-emptying is vindicated. The greatest act of humility in all cosmic history is followed by the greatest exaltation, He's exalted to the highest highest place, given a name above every other name, every knee bowing and every tongue acknowledging his lordship. Jesus, the suffering son of man, took the long view. And that's my last point, take the long view. And even in Christ's stupendous exaltation, he's true to the essential nature of, of God he looks to our good he shares his earned glory with us if the scripture didn't say that and say it again and again in various ways we would be perhaps ashamed to to repeat it he prayed to the father the glory that you've given me I have given to them And he teaches, uh, Mark 14, for example, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Like Jesus and like Paul, we too can take the long view. Our suffering, our humiliations, our humbling of ourselves for each other and for the sake of the church and the gospel will also be vindicated On the last day, our union with him will be perfected. Paul wrote to the Roman church, We are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We can take the long view. So let me conclude with with a note of encouragement. There is wonderful joy and freedom that comes from living with this mind of Christ. It is the freedom to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get your own way. Wanting our own way is instinctive to our sinful nature. But, it, but it's a heavy and a bitter burden. It is so in the church. It is so in the home and in the community. Lay it aside. Let's rejoice this year in our union with the self-emptying, now-exalted Christ, a union that one day will be perfect. Let's concern ourselves first with the needs and the good of others, focusing on the central things of the gospel and God's kingdom. Make no mistake, our neighbours, our children, and our grandchildren are listening, and the world is watching. Amen.